Good morning again folks we're going to be going on with our series on running on empty uh, but church just before we do I hope you're doing well I hope you are still reaching out and encouraging one another um, I know our small group we're having a quiz night tonight um, and I'm going to call it right now I think Kathy Coffey and Barbara Melvin are going to be cheating but I, I just can tell it's going to happen but uh, so, yeah, we're, we're going to be doing lots to try and just keep in contact with each other. I hope you are doing the same. Reach out and um, don't be strangers to one another uh, in this difficult time. It's very easy to just wait for other people to reach out and to contact. But um, take the initiative. If someone's in your heart, if someone's in your mind, uh, pick up the phone, send a text, do something and, and just reach out and encourage them as best as you can. If you have your Bible with you this morning, uh, can I encourage you to turn to 1 Kings 19? Um, in the last couple of studies, we have been all over the Bible, kind of pulling lots of different things together, which has been good. It's been nice to be able to see the bigger picture that God has, uh, the heart that God has for our lives. We are to have full lives, uh, but we are to watch how we fill them. Uh, I think of the picture in Jeremiah 2 of the broken cisterns that don't hold any water. The picture there is of man-made wells. It's a picture of self-reliance or of filling up our own lives. And God says, okay, well, how's that going for you? You've left me the fountain of living water, the one where the constant supply is never going to run out. And you swap me for a broken well that doesn't even hold water. You're thirsty. It's God's way of saying, is it any wonder there's these people around feeling empty? So there is a place for feeling full. Christ himself said in John, I've come that you would have life in its fullest. So we have to be careful how we try to fill our lives. We can't just put in activity after activity after activity, commitment after commitment after commitment. That is a broken cistern and it's going to leave us tired and it's going to leave us feeling empty. Now, when we come to 1 Kings 19, we have the most famous example, I think, of someone who just runs out of fuel, who just empties. Now, why did Elijah get to the point of being collapsed in a heap, wanting to die? How did he get to that point? Well, running through our checklist of other messages, I don't think hurry was a problem for him. I don't think it was a heavy burden because he's just had a big victory. I don't think it's because he had no quiet time. So let's maybe even just go back and have a quick look at some of the Bible passages in going back from 1 Kings 17 and see what happens. God tells him there that there's going to be a drought that's going to last three years. That's going to have an impact on a farming community that's relying on rains coming down from the mountains. But God takes him and cares for him at the brick cherith, which dries up. Okay, well, that's tough, but there's no problem. It's a lesson on relying on the source, the giver, not the gifts. We're looking at the fountain of living water, not our own broken cisterns. Okay, cool. It's a lesson. I don't think that's the issue here, though. Because he goes on and he raises a boy from the dead in Zerapath after miraculously providing flour and oil for his mom day after day. Then in chapter 18, he takes on 450 prophets of Baal and 400 of Jezebel's own priests on Mount Carmel in this strange competition that, by the way, God never actually told them to do. The fire comes down. The nation repents. The promised rains come. And the last chapter, verses of chapter 18 says, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. So it seems strange to us then that chapter 19 turns around so much. Let's read a couple of verses quickly and put it together. 
Verse 1. When Ahab the king got home from Mount Carmel, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah, May the gods strike me and even kill me, if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you, just as you killed them. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, travelling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. So this guy has gone through this series of incredible miracles, from flour and oil appearing, raising the dead, calling down fire from heaven, seeing the drought end, his enemies die, the people repent. And then all it takes is for one moment to say, I'm going to get back at you. And he's, and he's totally changed. Now, I know what it says. It says Elijah was afraid, but the reaction to me doesn't quite line up. Now, I know hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, and Jezebel was a real Jezebel. She's the original. So this girl would be good on her word. But And I'm not saying that Elijah's wrong to be scared or, or wrong to be concerned. I, I think that's fine. I think it's totally understandable. But I think his reaction to his fear tells me that he was running on empty before he even realised it. I'm going to suggest to you that his fuel gauge was broken. You'll run out of fuel if the gauge is broken. You have no idea how much is left in your tank and so you'll just keep going and going and going until you find yourself at the side of the road going nowhere because you only know what's happened after it's happened. Let me even widen the scope here a wee bit because I think there's some people who have gauges that work in the car but they tend to ignore them. The gauge says the car's overheating. I'll be fine. The car's telling you there's no fuel left. I'll be fine. I've got another 30 miles. I know my limits. Yeah, but the car doesn't agree with you. If your gauges are broken or you're going to ignore what the car is trying to tell you, you're going to end up broken down on the side of the road. And I think when you stop paying attention to what your body is telling you, you're going to run out on empty. You could call it burnout. You could call it breaking down. You could might be depression, it might be chronic illness. I know those aren't all the same things, but the result's the same. You end up coming to a standstill. Now, practically, some of these gauges might be not getting enough sleep. How are you sleeping? Is there an unexpected change in your sleeping pattern? Are you waking up still tired? Uh, another gauge could be irritability. Has your patience just gone? Has the fuse gotten shorter and shorter for no apparent reason? What about weight? You could be piling the weight on or it could be dropping off dramatically. We see here with Elijah that he's pushing people away. He left his servant alone before going alone into the wilderness where he complains about them being alone. These are signs that your body is trying to tell you to pull in for a pit stop. It's time for a service. They're telling you to check the fuel gauge. You could be running on empty and you haven't realised it yet. Elijah has come to a standstill. I think his gauges were broken. Or, or at best, he's ignored his gauges. Point is, he still broke down. I think when the gauges change so quickly, like Elijah's do here, you really need to take time and talk with someone about that. For some, it'll be professional. For others, it'll be close friends. It depends on the circumstances. But I would insist, reach out to someone. Talk to someone. Big changes, dramatic changes are a big warning. Like, don't ignore it. Don't push on regardless. Talk to someone. Let Now, let's see, though, if we can figure out some of these traits. Let's read verse four again. Then he went alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. 
He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors who've already died. Gage number one, he lost a sense of his worth. I'm no better than my ancestors. A gauge you can't ignore is knowing your own worth to God. I've seen some people who've done amazing things and then they'll just rubbish them. It's like self-disqualification. It's like what they've done doesn't really count. They're smart. They're clever. They're getting good results. Maybe in exams, I that someone else got a higher mark. So-and-so can do it better than me. They do a good job at work, but oh, like I don't compare to someone else. And, like, it comes to so much easier to someone else. Yeah, but listen, God has given you a gift. And you're thinking it's a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. Anything God does in you somehow can't be cheapened by it being you. Listen, we're all in this together, all right? We're all in the same boat. We're all flawed. But it's God's grace. It's God's goodness. If he's given us talents and abilities, then we should rejoice in them. Not cheapen them because we think that because they're coming from us, they count as less. Rejoice that God has chosen to use you in your family, in your work of, uh, in your place of work. He's put you there. You have value to the kingdom of God. You are strategically placed by the commander in chief for a purpose. But when we start to doubt our worth, we either opt out, which we'll get to, or we'll overcompensate and we'll try to do it all ourselves and we'll obsess and obsess and obsess with quality. Is it good enough? Is it good enough? Can, can, I, can I redo it? Do I have to redo it? Have, have I got to apologize for this? Have I got to try again and try again and try again? When you start filling up man-made wells like that, that are just going to leak, and you're trying to work and work and work, and it's based on who you are and what you're doing, you'll never be filled. Because our worth comes from Christ. That God himself loved you enough to reach out, to convince you of sin, to save you, to sanctify you, to gift you, to speak to you daily, to listen to all your prayers and answer each one, even if it is with a no or a maybe. Pay attention to this gauge. It's telling you to pull in for a service because not being filled from the fountain that never runs out, but instead your own broken cistern, your own efforts, it's going to leave you empty. Elijah couldn't see all that God had done on him. I'm just like my other ancestors that have failed. But he was not. He's not like those other ones. God had done amazing things. I saw this online and I think the author is David Schultz. I apologise if it's someone else. But I think he said this. Much like a classroom being dismissed, I sheepishly went up to the great teacher and asked for a moment of the teacher's time. The great teacher softly says, of course, what's up? I've been holding this in for way too long, so I, I just let out. I'm the worst student in your class. I'm the worst Christian in your church. I'm the biggest sinner of all the sinners. I'm the dumbest guy in the room. I'm the first of failures. I'm a lousy loser. I feel, feel, feel. I try harder and I feel even more. Just go ahead. Kick me out already because I just can't do it. And then the great teacher simply says, well, David, you're in luck. Because in my class, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Awestruck, my mouth open. I had forgotten. I've heard it a million times and I'll probably need to hear it a million times more. Folks, check your gauge. Is your worth rooted in your works or is it rooted in Christ's work? Thank him today for making you who you are, for strategically putting you in just the right place. You have worth which is underlined by who you are in Christ and what he wants to do through you.
Now, God pulls alongside and does this for Elijah. And what I love is that God steps in first and then starts talking to him about all the stuff that's been going on. And so we're going to drop down a couple of verses to, to when they're talking to each other to see some of the other gauges that maybe Elijah's been ignoring. See, he had lost his sense of worth, but number two is that he's also lost perspective. In verse 10, he says, despite all that he's been doing, I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Elijah gives us a wee bit of his mindset here, yet he's not really telling the story right. He's just had this amazing victory. He's seen people respond to God's victory on Mount Carmel. He's felt the rain fall on his face for the first time in three years, and yet he says, I'm all alone. They're all against me. He's left the servant alone in verse 3. Now he's complaining about being all alone. It's a pity party that he's arranged for himself and it comes from being drained, from being tired. That happens after big wins as well as tough battles. Listen, when you drive your car after big journeys, you're still going to need to fill up again. Especially if you don't pay attention to what's on the tank, you could run out. Elijah is tired after all these things that have been going on. So tired he can't think straight. Have you ever been that tired? And Elijah just got to the point where he's ran out of fuel. And he's lost perspective. He's ignored the gauge, his emotional health. His perspective had started to warp. These drains on our resources meant tiredness has led to emotionalism. I feel like everyone's against me. Which really to Elijah at this point means that it might as well be true. Because I feel it. I don't think he'd have listened to you if you told him about the people that he's left behind. He's just so tired, so emotionally far away. He's not talking about things that are real. He's just talking about his take on them. His perspective is defining his reality. How he feels is defining his reality. And instead of looking inwards, he should have been looking upwards. And instead of looking inwards, he should have been looking around and seeing the things that God had been doing around him. He's lost his worth. He's lost his perspective. Third gauge is he's lost his motivation. See, not only did he question God's gifting and worth in his life, he's begun to question God's calling on his life. In the series already, we've mentioned the still small voice. We were talking about it whenever we were saying about starting your day full, how God doesn't use a big thundering voice to speak to us, but whenever you're so close to someone, all you have to use is a whisper, a still small voice. But in this passage, we read about what happens in that still small voice, about what happened just after the still small voice passed. Let's read verse 13. When Elijah heard the voice, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance to the cave. A voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. So to paraphrase what he's saying is, look, I've been busting a gut with these people. I've been knocking my head, pan in with them. And yet they just go on sinning. What's even the point? And there's a gauge worth watching. This will tell you if you're running on empty or not. Have you lost your appetite for serving God? Have you lost your appetite for, for volunteering? Have you lost your appetite for people? Have you lost your motivation? Now, I understand there's people who can come along and put you off uh, volunteering in a specific place. Or there can be things that happen that say, well, like, actually, I feel this really isn't right for me anymore. That's different. What I mean is 
when everything else is consistent and you just can't be bothered anymore, where all of a sudden you just say, I don't want to get out of bed for that. I don't want to get up off the sofa for this. He's been working hard. He's been risking his life teaching and preaching and they weren't changing and he blames himself. Although in the last chapter we, we read that they were changing. But he's down, he's critical, he's comparing himself to ancestors that he has on a pedestal. And so he decides that because he has no worth, then what he does has no worth either. God, what's the point? I'm obviously a failure. I'm no better than anyone else. He's lost his motivation because what he thought what his job was, was to make everyone else close to God. That wasn't his job. That was never the job of the prophets. The job of the prophets was to be obedient to God and to say, okay, here's what God has told me to say. Hear ye the word of the Lord. One of the hardest things that I've had to learn and come to terms with in terms of being a pastor is that I'm not responsible for the walk of anyone other than myself. I can pray with people, I can work with people, I can preach and pour my heart out and do as much as I can, but what you go and do with that and the decisions that you make, they don't necessarily reflect on me. It's your life, it's your decisions. My job isn't to police everyone. And so the quality of your walk doesn't reflect my worth as a pastor, doesn't reflect my worth to God. It doesn't reflect on God's calling on my life. I can teach you as best I can. And sure, I can be evaluated for my content. I can be uh, critiqued for my style. Uh, no doubt I am. But if I teach you well and you don't take it on board, it's not on me. I can't put that responsibility on myself. It'll have me empty in no time. You can't put responsibility like that on you about every little thing that your children do, every little thing that your neighbours do, every little thing that's going on around you. You can't put that weight on you. God hasn't called you to police everyone around you. He's called you to be obedient. And if you share your faith and if you share your life and you share and you open up your home and you do what you can, it's not on you. Their walk is between them and God. What they do with Christ is between them and God. All we can do is be obedient. I can't start changing my job title to something that involves fixing everyone. If I do, I will burn out in no time at all. The body's not made to handle that kind of responsibility. Now maybe by having that kind of pressure in his life, Elijah's been running on empty for a long time before we get to this point. His gauges were broken. He's ignored the little changes that maybe weren't obvious from the outside, but in inside, the internal changes, the internal dynamics, his loss of worth, his loss of perspective, his loss of motivation. But the fourth one is the most dangerous one. It's that he lost hope. He had given up. Verse four again, I've had enough, Lord. Take away my life. When our tank runs out of fuel, we lose any sense of going anywhere. We're stuck here. We're stuck at the side of the road. So nothing's going to change. I've got nothing left in the tank. I'm so I'm stuck here. I'm watching everyone else move forward in their life. I am stuck in this place and nothing can change. I've got no fuel to go anywhere. Elijah says as much. I can't go any further. I've had enough, Lord. I've got nothing left to give. There's nothing in the tank. Now, I'm not saying that anyone who thinks like that is suicidal necessarily. It can happen in marriages. I hear maybe someone in the one of the couples say, you know, I just don't love them anymore. I've got nothing left in the tank for them. 
can happen a lot in a marriage. There will be days when you feel closer to your spouse than others, but marriage isn't based on love. It's an important ingredient, but it's not the only ingredient. There'll be days whenever your marriage is dependent, not necessarily on how you feel and your perspective, but on your maturity, your commitment, your character, your integrity. These things you can control. You can't necessarily always control your feelings. As we said before, because when you start running on empty, we prioritize our feelings and it starts to get warped a wee bit. And then we abdicate, we abandon, we walk away. I'm out, I've got nothing left, I've had enough. But when you keep your perspective and when you keep, you're less inclined to just walk away, to give up hope. And yet people will walk out of marriages and they'll walk out of a church, they'll walk away from God. I've had enough, Any, I've lost any desire that I've had. Nothing was changing, I wasn't going anywhere. I've got nothing left to give. So what did God do to get alongside Elijah and refuel him? Well, we see God deals with different aspects of his emptiness. There's the physical, the emotional, the relational and spiritual. Let's read verses 4 to 8. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my, my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, Get up and eat some more, for, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And there he came to a cave where he spent the night. First thing that God does is give him rest. Notice when God comes alongside Elijah, he doesn't say anything, but just gets him to eat, gets him to drink, gets him to sleep, and repeats it. God knows our bodies all too well. He's designed them. He knows their limits. He knows what they're made for. Psalm 127 too says, It's useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat. God gives rest to his loved ones. He doesn't lecture Elijah or tell him to go shopping or go get some retail therapy. No, just lets him rest. Feeds him. Let's him rest some more. It was the first thing that God did for Elijah. Now, one lion isn't key. It's not going to fix everything. But here God shows there's a routine of sleep and I'm looking after your physical needs. Now, a theologian out there might be saying, well, okay, look, Jeff, I understand that, but, you know, that's not the most important thing Elijah was going through. A psychologist might say, Jeff, that's not the most important thing that's going on there. Well, okay, you take it up with God then, okay, because he's the one who made us, all right? You tell him how you think he should look after us. Because when you get as low as Elijah does here, okay, a day off isn't enough. And there's other things to consider that we will see. But a great starting point is to just recharge the physical batteries. And then you'll find that Elijah is going to be in a better place for God's second part of the refueling process. And that is not to rest, but then to release. This is for the emotional side. Rick Warren said that revealing your feeling is the beginning of healing. Verses 9 and 10 tell us that, that after a rest, Elijah just starts unloading all his anxieties, his burdens, his cares. It's like God just says, okay, spill your guts, Elijah. What's on your mind? What are you doing here? I think it's God's way of saying, what's your take on all this, Elijah? What's your take? What's your perspective on everything that you're seeing? I mean, God knows the answers, but he's wanting Elijah to 
open up. He's wanting him to start to talk, to express himself, to articulate himself. I think when people like Elijah are struggling with this, I think people like Elijah struggle with this. Whenever you're leading and you put yourself in that position of, well, if it's going to be, it's got to be me. Um, and you feel like everyone around you is depending on you when you feel like you're the want the cornerstone of it all, that you're the one who has to keep the whole thing going. You find it hard to open up to people. You find it hard to talk to people. Uh, I, I've seen so many pastors burning out because they've had no one to talk to. Because everyone in the church, well, they're looking to me. And uh, if, I, if I felt I had to talk to someone, that's showing weakness and it might compromise my authority. It's pride is what it is. And it's so important, folks. You will always have things draining your fuel tank until you get to the point where you say, okay, God, here's the problem. I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to hand it over to you. Elijah has six issues in the passage. He says, I'm afraid, I'm bitter, I'm angry, I'm lonely, I'm worried, I'm depressed. Look, that's a sure recipe for burnout. And so he has to start to talk to God about it. But notice there's still no lecture. God doesn't say, well, hold on, Elijah. You could have had someone or there were people there or you're, you're wrong, Elijah. No, he never corrects him. He never points out the flaws in his logic. He never debates it. He just listens. Some of the commentaries I read during the week started pointing out just how this mirrors a lot of the Psalms and how David started just venting and, and releasing things. Um, and you realise that a lot of the Psalms feel very unchristian or very unchurchy. Um, David's writing stuff like, I hate my enemies, I want them to die. God, go kill them and their children and their children's children. I think what God is doing is saying, look, it's okay to be frustrated with people in this life. It's okay to be frustrated even with him in this life as long as we come and talk to him about it. It's okay to come and say to God, okay, look, I'm actually struggling to trust you with this. I'm struggling to believe you're even there sometimes. I struggle with worry. I struggle with lust. I struggle with temptation. You do know that he's not going to hear anything that he doesn't already know. And he's also not going to hear anything that's going to change how he feels about you. He loves you unconditionally. That means there's no circumstances that are going to change it. It's unconditional. You can't change how much he loves you by being honest with him. Could I say also, it is good to talk to other people about some of these things as well. Close friends, some of the leaders here in church, a small group. Uh, find a place where you can talk through some of these things that you face. Don't carry your burdens by yourself. Don't bottle up your burdens. Let them go. Hand them over to God. And find people that are going to help you do that. So number one, rest. Number two, release. Number three, refocus. Verses 11 to 13. God tells Elijah to stand before him. The wind, the earthquake, the fire, and God isn't in them. And then a still, small voice. You ever wonder what the still, small voice said? We've talked about this before and um, you never have to shout whenever you're close and God is so close that he whispers. But I wonder, what did he whisper? God must have said something that we're not privy to. Uh, by the way, I, I love that. I love that we don't know. I love that there's something here that's just intimate uh, and set aside and it's just between a father and a son. It says, we're not going to share this with anyone. It's just between me and Elijah. I, I love that. But he seems to say something in the still small voice that just causes something to kind of click. 
Elijah suddenly wraps up his face uh, as if he's only now realising that he's in the presence of God. He kind of just comes out of this trance that he's been in. And it's now he realises, oh, I'm in the presence of Holy God. Whatever it was, it must have been something along the lines of, remember who I am. The wind, the earthquake, the fire serve to remind us, yes, of the power of God. But the still small voice reminds us of the intimacy of God. And it clicks with Elijah. Whatever I'm facing, yes, God is bigger. And he's with me. And he's for me. And so just see the flow of that there. God allows him to rest. Gets him to a place where he can talk and vent and get it off his chest. And then God speaks. He speaks in a soft whisper that allows Elijah to refocus his mind, to regain the focus that he had lost, the sense of worth that he had lost, the perspective that he had lost. Folks, when we're hurting, when people have broken down, when they've run out of fuel, it's not a tough love kind of a situation. Look at how God restores Elijah. It's slowly. Verse 8 says that it's over a period of 40 days. They've traveled for 40 days to get to Sinai. He takes four weeks, five weeks to just make sure that he's, he's refueled properly. Whispering, feeding, making sure he's resting, making sure he can talk it all through. Just remember that when you're talking to people who are stressed. Remember that whenever you're dealing with people who are burnt out. A couple of days off isn't going to fix it. So the last point, resume rest release refocus and then resume verses 15 and 16 basically says get back to work and take these three men with you there's hazael jehu and elisha who will be your successor god wants to get him going again to turn on the ignition to get back on the road and so he gives him three names and three jobs that they're to do and his, his plan for each of them no big miracles no big feats no big confrontations just a simple admin these three guys need to be put in these three posts Get back to work. And this time, don't do it all by yourself. These guys are going to be here to support you. They're going to be here to cover some of the bases. Serve in the context of community. Take these young guys under your wing and teach them. Let them help you. The fourth step is relational support. Learn from your mistakes. Make adjustments. You're not supposed to do this all by yourself. Elijah had said, enough, I'm out. Kill me. God says, no. I'm not finished with you yet. You don't see your value the way I see it. And so look, as we close, it could be that God's saying to you, look, I'm not finished with you yet. In spite of the problems, in spite of the depression, in spite of the hurt, in spite of the burnout, in spite of the heaviness that you're feeling, I'm not finished with you yet. You're still of great value, you're still worth, there's still a point of you being here. There is more to do. There's further to go. This is a stop that you didn't expect, but it's not the destination. I will finish what I started in you. God is not finished with you. So get your eyes back on him. And after you rest, after you get the things off your chest that you need to, and once you dust yourself off, get involved again. Learn from your mistakes, but don't forget there is joy to be found in serving together. There is satisfaction to be found in serving together. There's significance to be found in serving together. And maybe you haven't wanted to get up for a while. You haven't wanted to step forward again. This lockdown has just been an excuse for you to just zone out and do nothing. Listen, there's hope. Don't give up. God cares. The elders care. I care. The church cares. This is God's recovery plan. 
the physical, the emotional, the spiritual, the relational steps to refuel once you've run out. You can make it with God's help. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. And maybe even just pray with me now. Dear Jesus, I know how you know how tired I am. You know how frazzled my emotions are. You know how often I feel like I can't make it. I need your help. I need you to restore my soul today. I'm surrendering the control of every area of my life to you. I'm going to follow your direction even when it doesn't make sense because you're God and I'm not. Help me to take action on these steps this week. Help me to get the rest that I need. Help me to spend time with you every day, reading your word and talking to you about how I'm feeling and how I'm frustrated. Help me to stay focused and centered on you. Help me to get into a friendship group where I can receive support. Help me to give my life away in serving others. And in your name I pray. Amen. Folks, uh, if you do need to reach out, if you do need to talk to me or the elders, we're here. We haven't stopped being elders. We haven't stopped being church leaders. Um, okay, yes, we'll confess sometimes it's easier to miss people. It's maybe easier to forget and we, and we try on our best. But if you need to talk to one of us, please... Don't hesitate, pick up the phone, send a text, send an email, do something. And we'd love to just rally around, support you and just try and help build you up again. God bless.